Curse. This is Speak and Destroy, Episode 5. I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey, and my guest today is Rob Flynn, guitarist, vocalist, frontman, founder of Machine Head. As frontman of Machine Head, Rob Flynn is of course an important metal figure in his own right, responsible for records like Burn My Eyes and The More Things Change, both of which are modern metal classics. My personal favorite Machine Head record, Through the Ashes of Empires. And more recent and no less killer work like The Blackening, Unto the Locust, and 2014's Bloodstone and Diamonds. But Rob is also an unashamed and outspoken Metallica fan. Machine Head has not only covered Metallica in the past and toured with them as part of the Death Magnetic World Tour. As a Bay Area native, who's a few years younger than the guys in Metallica, Rob had the unique vantage point of watching the birth of the thrash metal movement as a teenager in high school, and at the same time, participating in the Bay Area thrash movement as a founding member of third wave thrash bands Forbidden and Violence, a band that also included lead guitarist Phil Demmel, who of course reunited with Flynn in Machine Head, becoming the band's lead guitar player about 15 years ago. Now, I don't know that Rob remembers this, but the first time we met was actually in 1999. Uh, I was still living in Indianapolis at the time and was flown out on the Roadrunner Records dime to write a story about Machine Head for Circus Magazine of all publications. I came out to Hollywood for a few days and I got to stay at the Riot Hyatt on Sunset, which was exciting for me at the time. I met with the band in the studio where they were mixing the album The Burning Red with Terry Date. And I remember my impression of Rob at the time was that he was very friendly, very charismatic, and I realize this is almost a cliche to say about a musician, but super passionate about the work that he was creating with Machine Head. The Burning Red gets a bad rap from some Machine Head fans, but I think From This Day is an amazing song. I think the title track, which is moody and vibey and is and is sort of like a metal version of The Cure's Disintegration record in a weird sort of way. There's a lot of great stuff on that record. And if you are a Machine Head fan and you haven't listened to it in a long time, I would highly recommend going back and revisiting it as I did recently. And these are the kind of conversations you get into when you're a real fan of a band, the way that Rob and I are both fans of Metallica. We had a very fun, lively, engaging, and straightforward conversation about this band that we both love so much, and I think you're really going to enjoy listening to it. I got to know Rob a little bit better a few years later. As a manager, I had both the bands Bleeding Through and Throwdown on tour with Machine Head uh, at different times. There was a Machine Head Arch Enemy Throwdown tour at some point, and a world tour that was Machine Head Hatebreed and Bleeding Through that I think went to Europe, all through America, Australia, and Japan, if I'm not mistaken. So I've had a, a couple of different opportunities to get to sit down with him, and moreover, over the last couple of years, just writing emails back and forth about different topics that we're both passionate about. One thing I've always appreciated about Rob is the way that he stood up for my good friend Andy Beersack and the band Black Veil Brides after <laughs> Black Veil's uh, 
Revolver Golden Gods Awards acceptance speech where Andy did battle with some uh, hecklers and haters in the crowd. Verbal warfare. Uh, you know, Rob is one of the people who, like myself, looked at that incident and said, hey, maybe I should give this band a look because that's pretty badass and cool what this kid did standing up to a room full of, like, you know, construction worker-sized metalheads who were trashing him simply because of the way he looked or the way his band sounds. So anyway, Rob, I give you my eternal salute for having Andy's back and for having all of our back as an ambassador for metal and someone who always speaks his mind. And, you know, the best and most incredible, amazing thing that came out of all of that machine head and bleeding through touring together is that my good friend, someone who I've, uh, you know, has been like a family member to me going back to when we first met in 2003, Marta, the keyboard player for Bleeding Through, her and Phil Demmel met on those tours and fell in love and are now married and raising two children together. Uh, Phil's son from a previous marriage and their new little one that they had together. Uh, Phil is an amazing dude. I couldn't, couldn't be happier for both of them and couldn't be more psyched as kind of an older brother for her over the years uh, that she ended up with somebody who's every bit as talented and killer as she is. So anyway, let's not get sappy here on Speaking Destroy because it's about Metallica and it's metal. Here is my interview with my pal, Rob Flynn of Machine Head. This is Speak and Destroy. <laughs> You are a avowed super fan like myself, mm-hmm. and I uh, I got to see one of those two forum shows that you did with Metallica in L.A., which, man, was probably, I guess that was Death Magnetic, so... Yeah, 08. Yeah, 2008. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I've read a little bit about where you've spoken before about hearing Kill Em All for the first time in high school, mm-hmm. um, and I know, you know, Black Sabbath, I think, was a little bit before that for you. What were... For sure. What was the uh, the heavy music sort of trajectory for young Robert Flynn? Uh, I mean, my earliest, I mean, I was listening to music for literally as long as I can. My earliest memories, you know, my, my earliest memories are Bad, Bad Leroy Brown, Baddest Man in the Whole Damn Town by Jim Croce. Nice. And so, you know, and I was living in this like pretty crusty part of San Lorenzo. And so the people that he was talking about in the song were like, people in my neighborhood and so i would look around and that song just held this those lyrics i don't know i mean i can remember all the lyrics even now and i was probably four or five singing that song and i i bought the single you know 45 (laughs) i'm showing i'm showing my age here i bought the 45 and i memorized all the lyrics you got a custom continental you got a hell And, you know, so for me, that was like, it was just this really dark, gritty song. And I was about street life in this, in this area. And, um, I don't know. I just was really attracted to that. And then, uh, 
But you you got you got me beat because my first forty five was Neil Diamond coming to America from the yeah. Jazz I mean, I mean for sure. I mean for sure. I had you know like all of those other pop things too. You know, because my parents listened to the radio. The pop station up here was KFRC, so they played you know uh, Afternoon Delight and like, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. I love that song too. But you know, I think that for for a long time my parents were pretty, you know, I think my parents were pretty open about the music they listened to. They would listen to a lot of R and B. So I listened to a lot of black music growing up, you know, like tons of R and B earth, wind and fire Commodores, you know, that was all the the music that was played around my house. And then my, they both listened to the early Beatles, but I couldn't listen to the hippie Beatles. So like Sergeant Peppers was off limits because it was like the drugged out Beatles. <laughs> the bad influence Beatles. The bad, the bad influence Beatles. And so I, I had a friend, Eric, and he turned me on to Sergeant Peppers and I was hanging out at his house and, and he turned me on to that record. And I just remember being like, what the fuck is this? And we would just listen to that record nonstop. And like, this is the craziest shit I've ever heard. You know, so the Beatles... You know, I don't know if that's considered heavy, but that was kind of my first introduction to like, you know, music that was just not on. I mean, that wasn't even really on pop radio at that point. So then came, you know, I had another friend turn me on to ACDC, Van Halen, you know, but at the same time it was, you know, Duran Duran and Devo. Yeah. And then I got into Van Halen, ACDC, Black Sabbath, about literally, I think the same week, this friend of mine, Lori Kibby turned me on to she played heaven and hell van halen one and highway to hell and i was just like what the fuck is this so it just you know this whole new thing happened and then i really went down the black sabbath hole you know first time i smoked weed and you know just going on and and then i had a friend jim Pittman who was in my art class you know he, we just hit it off we sat next to each other and he he was listening to all this like he was the guy who really turned me on to all this underground music. You know, he was telling me about, you know, this radio station that plays stuff from two to 6 AM called KUSF. And, you know, he had these recordings. And so he would, he would kind of pull me aside and play all this stuff. You know, at that time around, like Motley Crue too fast for love was out. And to me, that was like the heaviest new shit around. And so I was loving yeah. that, but he played except, you know, restless and wild. And then the Metallica demo came out and it sounds super weird to say, but like, you know, they were just this, young unsigned band you know and he had just heard this on the radio station he recorded and he played me the song whiplash I'd never heard anything that fast. You know, I hadn't heard Motorhead or any of the kind of pre-thrash stuff at that point. You know, then we just went crazy. Like all we could do, we found out about, he found out about all these record stores in San Francisco. And and we were living in, I was living in Fremont by then. And Fremont was just a, you know, a boring, gigantic suburb about 45 miles away from San Francisco. So, you know, you got to remember in like 1981, we might as well have been in fucking Nevada. You know, like <laughs> right. if you were yeah. five miles away from the city, like no car, like you were just, you know, there was no connection. But that radio station, KUSF, was a college station out of San Francisco, and it barely made it out to Fremont, the, the radio waves. Hello. 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 
Metallica, and you're not. You're listening to KUSF 90.3 FM dial. And so him and I would stay up till two in the morning, and we'd take my little Radio Shack, you know, <laughs> cassette recorder slash radio, and aim my antenna and record these super staticky, crackly versions of Exodus demos and Metallica demos. And pretty soon we had, you know, pretty soon we were taking Bart out to San Francisco and buying the Exodus demos and the Jump in the Fire demo. So, you know, for us it was really early on that we were getting, and you know, pretty much the first time I got drunk. You know, yeah. we were blast. We went out, we're blasting Whiplash and walking around my high school and just screaming the lyrics at night. And these very early cool memories of you know that's when Four Horsemen was still called Mechanics. Yeah, you know, all that stuff. So I just watched. It's funny you mentioned that. I just watched a pro shot video. I think it was from Valken. I mean, it just just went up on YouTube a couple of days ago of Megadeth doing Mechanics like recently, like just now. It still rips. I mean, I love both songs, but uh, you know, I, I got to say, I prefer Four Horsemen lyrically. Yeah, but... it, yeah. in retrospect, <laughs> but... it was the right call to get rid of the lyrics, like you know. Yeah, the... but I but I do love how, how fast and, and piss mechanics. Screw than me, I do it for my life. Not my drive shaft crank. You make my pistons bulge. <laughs> make my ball make bearings my ball melt from the heat. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, stupid. it's like it's like hair metal level, like sex metaphor song. Yeah. Um, sex innuendo via uh, you know car parts <laughs> yeah but i do but i but i will give it up to megadeth for how pissed and fast that version is it's really fast right yeah. like it's so fast it's crazy and i mean and him yelling fuck yeah is just that's always gonna that it's always gonna make the hair stand up on my arms yeah. when, I, when i hear that fuck yeah and mechanic I mean, it's funny, you know, it's funny too, because back then, you know, especially in those demo days and, you know, so he, like my, like I said, my friend would collect all these demos. He's, he collected all these bootlegs. He traded tapes, which is, you know, people record these cassette tapes and then just duplicate them over and over. And there was this huge underground scene of tape traders who have these, you know, typed up 14 page lists with bootlegs and demos and yeah. underground cuts and B-sides. And so 
my my buddy Jim Pittman just ended up getting like 14 he had his own 14 page list of all this stuff so we had live versions from all over and different demo versions and um you know it's funny because back then like you'd listen to these bootlegs and it was really Mustaine who was the quote unquote front man of Metallica right, right. You know, he was he was the guy who talked to the crowd he was the kind of I don't want to say the face of the band, but Hetfield was so kind of introverted at that point that I guess he just let Mustaine do the talking. I don't really know, you know. Uh, wasn't that you? The song's about evil old motherfucker. We call him the Phantom Lord. That was just my outsider. So when he got the boot, it was like, whoa. The main guy got kicked out, yeah. even though he really wasn't. Yeah, but, you know. Well, and it's it's funny to me, um, you know, being a kid in the '80s uh, and not understanding, you know, certainly the intricacies of of songwriting and how publishing works and all the different viewpoints on on how you divide up songwriting. I, I remember reading liner notes and seeing Mustaine's name in there, and it always being last, and just thinking like, okay, his name's last, so he probably had like some minimal contribution to the song. And then as an adult, you know, um, you know, seeing Metallica at the 30th anniversary shows, and Lars saying, uh, you know, when when Dave came into the band, he was in this band Panic, and he had this song "Jump in the Fire." This is the first song that uh, this is the first song that Jay, uh, Dave brought to us, right? Because he had a, he had a band before called Panic. And there were a couple of things that Dave showed up and, um, and showed James and I. So this is the first song that, uh, that Dave showed us. Check it out. We're going to play that song now. And you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> it kind of sounds yeah. like this guy wrote a lot of music then. If, you know, yeah. if some of these were just straight up finished pro- songs. Yeah, it was probably just a dig at mistake. I'm like, we're putting you last. <laughs> yeah, we're going to put you in here, but we're putting you last. Cause- and you look at those credits, they go all the way to Master of Puppets, which is really shocking that they were still using his riffs. Yeah, you know, that'd be like me using, you know, Logan Mater riffs well into my, you know, <laughs> exactly. the record. Like, it's kind of crazy. Exactly. And and it's wild, too, when you even look at, you know, when you, you think about the big four and you look at how prolific each of those bands has been. And Metallica is always busy. You can never say that they aren't working. But in terms of studio albums... Um, you know, the amount of original Metallica material that's out there is significantly less than those other three bands. Yeah. I want to mention something before we go too much further. Um, I love that you mentioned uh, your first exposure to Sabbath was actually Heaven and Hell. I think that that's uh, something that gets kind of lost in the annals of history was how important the Dio Sabbath era was, even in making new fans and turning people on. I mean, it's like, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge Judas Priest fan, of course, and I've gotten to interview Rob Halford before and a couple of times, and he's always lovely and great. But I mean, you know, my first exposure to Priest was Turbo.
You know, and I, right. I, didn't, I didn't know that that was like the cold lake of Judas Priest. <laughs> right. You know, like I just, I saw the video on MTV and I was like, whoa, this guy's cool. This song's weird. This video's right. sketchy, you know, and right, right. and then you go in and, and dig into like, you know, what everything you're supposed to like and love and the whole process of discovery. Yeah. I mean, somewhere out there, there's a kid whose first Iron Maiden show had Blaze Bailey on vocals. <laughs> right. Know? It's like, yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, it's, I mean, I think that, yeah, I mean, and to me, I love that record, you know, I mean, oh, I love absolutely. that record and granted now I went down the rabbit hole after that. And then I was just, you know, fell in love with that early Sabbath. And, you know, if you were to like put a gun to my head and say, you know, Ozzy Sabbath or Dio Sabbath, of course I would say Ozzy Sabbath, you know, because I just, those songs resonated a lot. And there was just more of them. You know what I mean? There was more right. albums. There was more to dig into. There was more of a story. Obviously it was the original, you know, but, but yeah, you know, that record, you know, hit me like a ton of bricks. I just, I couldn't get enough of that album and I still love that album. And that, and that was an important step, you know, for me, when I look at the chronology of Sabbath, you know, if I would have started on say never say die or technical ecstasy right. i probably never i never would have been a sabbath fan you know because these were there were horrible records they're garbage you know like yeah. i hate those records as much as i love black sabbath i can sit here as a fan and say you know what those records suck you know johnny blade okay i don't really like the song never say die but you know then you have that kind of rebirth with dio where they just had really good songs you yeah. know really well crafted well structured songs with you know all the classic kind of elements you know back into the dark more satanic vibe of black sabbath yeah i was gonna say to the like, imagery came back too yeah, yeah. totally yeah, like technical, cover, you know yeah those last two albums were really just like i don't even know what the vibe was you know like it was very confusing to me going back and listening to it and you know that Sabbath of heaven and hell was really, you know, dark and dirty and, and, and evil, which was as a kid, you know, the teenager was very appealing. Yeah. You know, it's interesting is I, you know, I've never, uh, Growing up a punk and hardcore and metal kid and whatever, but with the exception of boxing and UFC these days, I never paid attention to sports. I've just never been a sports guy. And obviously, I have a lot of friends who, you know, love football and basketball and whatever. Yeah, okay, right. So, but one thing I realized, and it was Metallica that brought me this realization, I, I finally came to understand sports fandom via my fandom of bands like Metallica and Black Sabbath. Because like you said, you love Sabbath and there's like the totality of the whole Sabbath experience. But as a fan, you can still kind of nitpick and go like, I hate this album. I didn't like this. I didn't like, you know what I mean? And, and I realize mm -hmm. it's kind of like hearing sports fans go like, well, I like the 1980, whatever Chicago bears, right, right. This, you know, you know, the coach sucks this year or whatever, you know, it's like you can, you have so much love that you can passionately even talk about the things that irritate you or that you wish had been done differently while still loving the whole thing. And it finally made me go like, Oh yeah, it's like, it's like with Metallica. Yeah. And <laughs> plus know? it's, and plus with sports, it's competitive. So there's that thing that, you know, the competitive nature of it too. So, yeah. you know, who's going to win it. And, and it's crazy bringing our conversation kind of full circle too. you know, thinking about, you as a kid and discovering this stuff and being in high school and everything. And we're talking about heaven and hell and we're talking about, you know, Mustaine's early role in Metallica. And then of course, you know, 10 years ago, there was the heaven and hell Megadeth machine head tour. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> it's totally. like, there you are, you know, from, from fan to contemporary. It's, Oh, it's there, that amazing. tour was, you know, I mean, we had toured with Megadeth before several times, so I knew them, but you know, that was 
and I had toured with actually toured with Black Sabbath before when they did the Ozfest '97, and we were on it as well. Yeah, and uh, you know, even still, you know, there was ten years between each of those tours. So it was '97 was the Sabbath original reunion with Ozzy, Mike Borden on drums, Geezer and Tony, and then ten years later it was the Heaven and Hell with Dio, you know, Geezer, Tony, and Vinnie Apice on drums. And even still, you know, the Sabbath thing. You know, I, I don't really get starstruck, you know, anymore. There was a time when I did, and there's, you know, probably two people in the world who still have, like, a, you know, I'm kind of a little starstruck, and Iomi is definitely one of them. You know, like he wa- oh, he would walk he would walk out of the dressing room, and my dressing room right next to his or our dressing room, and he'd walk out, and I'd walk out at the same time just by happenstance, and he'd look over and he'd be like, "Hey, Rob," and, like, <laughs> and I'd be like. Hey Tony Iomi, <laughs> how you doing? <laughs> you know, and then he just walked yeah. on and kind of do what it goes every day. And I was like, this is so weird. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, oh, man. It just never, it was never not weird. And it was always like, I always had to remind myself, like, all right, be cool. You know, like just you know, chill out. Right. You're here. You know, you're here. You know, you, you're here. So you're obviously you know cool enough to kick it. You know, just remind yourself that. And you know, but it's still just those riffs and that music and just everything was so such a powerful influence. I mean, just yeah. so so uh important you know and you know it's, it's funny too because i never really sat down and had like i, I it was a couple times when i kind of i don't want to say bro down with tony iomi but like we had a good 10 minute conversation you know and that's all that's all i want you know like i don't want an right. autograph i don't care about a selfie i don't care about anything like for me like i just want to pick somebody's brain you know yeah. what i mean like that's yeah you know, when I was when I was hanging out with the Metallica dudes on that tour, like I would just, you know, to me the whole the thrill of going out with them would be like, all right, I'm gonna fucking grill them. <laughs> like, I'm gonna grill them about every question I ever wanted to know yeah. about Metallica. You know, this isn't about you know you learned about me or whatever. Like, I want to know about you and like why you did this and the things that happened and. You know, I don't know if I ever had that kind of same grill session with Iomi because I never really went out getting, you know, hammered. Whereas with Lars and Metallica, like we would go out and fucking rage until 8 a.m. You know? yeah. So, yeah. so you'd have that time. But but it was it was good. And to me, that's like if that's all I get out of it, you know, that's really that's like the highlight of the, you know, like you never it's it's always a little weird meeting your idols. You know, there's something, you know, you try, you're like, you're kind of, you know, you're talking to yourself like, okay, don't make this awkward or whatever, you know, and in some ways, <laughs> yeah. you kind of make it awkward because, you know, it's like, you're so, you know, like overwhelmed. And so for me, I always just try and get past that and just talk, you know, because that is, you know, I don't know, just maybe it's the, just me being older. Like that's the essence of life. Like a fucking awesome conversation literally gets my blood pumping. You know what I mean? Yeah, and you know, and you know from being on the other side of that too, having fans come up to you that are just like, "Oh, this is this is my chance to have a couple moments with Rob Flynn." Like, what do, what do I say? What do I do? What am I going to ask? You know? And right. And I always try and remember that when I talk to people, and there's that you know, those people come up and they're completely just flustered and starstruck, and they can't think of anything to say. And I'm like, I always tell them like, "Relax, it's okay. Like, just just hang, you know, and try yeah. and try and make that easier to." to get past because of course i don't look at myself like that but i know what that feeling is yeah 
And I think it's so relatable, something you you hit upon, you know, talking about being around Iomi, where, you know, there's that thing in psychology I've read about, uh, they call it imposter syndrome, where it's like we always, no matter what we accomplish or who we are or where we're at, we always feel like, you know, we're going to get found out that like we don't belong or, you know, it's that inner voice where, like you were saying, where you're, you're kind of reminding yourself like, wait, I'm here. I'm like on this tour. I'm like supposed to be, you know, it's like, yeah, I, I wrote 10 ton hammer. Like, I'm like, I made it here, you know, because <laughs> right. there's always that part where you're like, man, this guy's going to look at me and be like, what are you doing here again? Like, <laughs> I'm going to yeah. be found out, you know, and there's, and there's you know, there's definitely in the music business, there's definitely, you know, more than a handful of those guys too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They usually don't last as long, so they get weeded no. out. So getting back to those that day, the days of uh, of tape trading around that time, demos were like albums. You know, I mean, I, as a kid, I remember I didn't see too much distinction even between um, having like a live bootleg versus having a record. Once I kind of started to discover that scene, and I'm, you know, you've got a few years on me, not not that many. You know, I was coming in um, behind you on all that stuff. But I'm curious, you know, what was the jump then from checking out those tapes and finding the record stores and discovering all these bands to then discovering shows? Because, I mean, you know, I'm I'm a kid in Indiana, and like you said, you might as well have been on a different planet in the 80s because we didn't have the internet and cell phones and all that shit. But by the same turn, you you were right there by the epicenter of, of the Bay Area thrash thing. Sure. And eventually, totally. you know, part of the second wave of that. So what was the transition from listening to the stuff to then to kind of participating to going to shows and you know when did you see metallica play for the first time uh well so my again my friend I, I, not to belabor jim here but you know i was a really introverted kid you know like it was you know, i really give him the credit for you know push, seeing something in me that i absolutely did not see in myself you know, like I always wanted to be on stage, you know, for the time I was a kid, I was always going out for the school play. I was always doing talent shows, but like off stage, if you want to call it, or just in regular, you know, non-stage life, I was just, I could barely hold conversations. And, you know, he was just my friend. He was just like, you know, you should play guitar. We need a guitar player. Start a band. He's like, look, we need to start a band. You know, like, and I was like, okay. He's like, you should play guitar. And then we'd play guitar. And then he's like, you seem like the singer. You should be the singer. Like it wasn't me going, I'm the singer. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it was, it yeah. was him going, you seem like the singer. You should be the singer. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and so yeah. just out of, out of whatever, I just started singing because more because he saw something in me and just said, that's what I should do. And he, so I started doing he, it. He was sort of your Lars in that sense. He was. <laughs> yeah. Pushing you out he there. To, he totally was. And I, you know, and then we got, I didn't, I just didn't have the confidence. And so we got a singer and, you know, he was older than us and it was great cause he could buy beer and stuff. So, um, but then he was like, we should go see, uh, Exciter was coming to town. They put out the record heavy metal maniac. And so we went to them, we were loving it. So we, we, uh, we took Bart out to San Francisco and went out to see them at the stone. And so, you know, this is a big trip on Bart. you know, it's a, it's a good hour out to the city and then we get out there and it's a huge walk up to Broadway to get to the show. And, and uh, we get there and we go to the show, we get right in the front row. And it was just, you know, the first time I'd ever seen a circle pit. I spent, I got up right in front of John Rishi, who was my guitar hero at the time. And just literally, I just head banged him and I head banged the whole time. <laughs> the opening band, the opening band was this band called Griffin. 
that somebody was talking shit to them in the front row, this dude standing directly in front of me was talking shit to the singer and their fucking roadie jumped off the stage, like drops this dude right in front of me. And I was like, Oh my God, like, this is crazy. like what's going on? This is crazy. And, uh, yeah, the circle pit. I'd never seen a circle pit. So we got out, we got out so late and then we ended up missing the BART train back. So we just stayed out in San Francisco at, you know, at the BART station waiting for 6am to come and, you know, took BART back the next morning and, and then the next show that I went to, we had these friends that were these girls who were punk rockers. And so they were friend. They had an older metalhead brother, but we just became friends with these two girls who were punk rockers. And they're like, "You oh, we were telling them about, hey, we went to our first thrash show. They're like, oh, you need to go to a punk rock show. We're like, really? What? Like, that sounds crazy. And they're like, no, we'll go. We'll protect you. <laughs> Which was, <laughs> like the girls will protect us. Yeah. You know, that was about, you know, part of the course for us. So uh, me and my friend Leroy went with them and these girls were like, they knew everybody. So this, so they're like, we're going to go take you to go see DRI. So DRI on the violent pacification EP when all they drew was nothing but SF skins. So the only people who went to go see the DRI shows back in San Francisco back then were skinheads. So we walk in and me and my friend have like shoulder length hair. You know, we go, we, they take us to these squats where all of the skinheads are living. And so, you know, we're hanging out in these squats and we're shitting our pants, dude. I mean, like these dudes are big and burly and gnarly and wasted. And we're just like, holy shit. You know, and they're the girl, they like the girls. So they're being cool. But uh, they, take, <laughs> they take us into the show we're sitting there watching in the opening band and this long haired dude comes in, pays his five bucks at the door, takes about four steps inside the venue. And this huge skinhead named dagger, the leader of the SF skin, this guy named dagger walks up to him and drops him and goes, no long hairs. <laughs> we're just like <laughs> me and my friend, like we're wearing flannels. We just pull up the flannels. Like, Oh my God, we're going to die. And DRI came on and it was it looked basically just like a skinhead fight for the next hour or you know, <laughs> probably wasn't even an hour, you know, probably 45 minutes because their songs were so fucking short back then. But it was. And we should, and, and we should probably pause for younger listeners and explain that uh, when we were talking about skinheads, we're not necessarily talking about white supremacists, right? Like, no, no, no. These were, you know, these were just crazy punk rock skinheads. These weren't like the racist white power skinheads. These are, you know, I think the SF skins were just crazy is what they were. (laughs) Like they were insane and super violent, but they didn't necessarily hate black people. They hated everybody, (laughs) (laughs) white long haired people and other white people. So it was, uh, it was brutal. I remember this guy, one of the guys we had met earlier, his name was Rob Noxious and he jumped up on stage while DRI was playing and he had a broken bottle and he just fucking sat there and jammed it into his forehead and blood just went pouring down his forehead. And then he just fucking smiled and jumped in and started punching people. And I was like, it was, I mean, I've never, I don't think I've ever seen anything like it before or since really, you know, like it was just so, I mean, other than I saw Gigi Allen twice and <laughs> And that was about as crazy as I've ever seen, but just crazy on a whole other level of yeah. crazy. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, and I love hearing the nicknames too, because, you know, in, in all the way across the country in Indianapolis, uh, growing up in, in my scene there in the late 80s and early 90s, you know, yeah, we had a, a skinhead named Snake. 
skinhead name Shaggy. Uh, there were, you know, speaking of Gigi, there were there was a kid from Chicago that everyone called Black Gigi. <laughs> <laughs> that dude who was like his skinhead but he was like crazy and did crazy stuff and people start calling him gg black gg and yeah. Like, yeah i mean those uh, uh that's almost like a a lost art of the uh i mean there's a lot of yahoos running around now with like self-appointed nicknames but those nicknames that you earn that people put on you like those were the legit ones yeah right <laughs> and then where they came with the story you know there was there was a skinhead dude in indy uh called merlin and everyone called him merlin because uh when people would trip on LSD, he would do quote unquote magic tricks. Oh, right. <laughs> like, so it was just Merlin, you know, like that's just what you called him. Yeah. So that was my, so that was my second show experience. And so, you know, this is my kind of formative, you know, introduction into punk rock and thrash. And, you know, it was, I mean, I walked away from that show terrified and thrilled. Yeah. And, you know, even now, like I still, I just went inside DRI, like, you know, a month ago and just, they're still killing it. And they're still, those songs are still awesome songs and super fast and just crazy. And The next, uh, the next show that was coming up, my friend told me, my friend Jim told me about it was like Metallica's cut. We gotta go see them. Kill 'em All had just dropped, and you know it was funny because we were kind of we were liking Kill 'em All, but you know the songs had changed quite a bit from the demo, so we were like, oh, I don't know about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. <laughs> but then we went. They were coming around, and it was Raven headlining, Metallica supporting, and then Exodus opening, and it was the Kill 'em All for one tour over at the uh, the Berkeley Keystone, which was a venue in Berkeley about 400 cap room. And, uh, and so I had my, so I had my dad drop us off because, you know, I wasn't going to have my dad, you know, I had, I had my dad drop us off two blocks away from the show. Cause I was like, I don't want you know, thrashers to see my dad. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm a thrasher dad, you know, I can't, yeah. can't be seen. So uh, he dropped us off and then he agreed to pick us up, which was very cool of him. And so, uh, we went and got in line. We met Paul Bailoff. We met James Hetfield, got an autograph from Hetfield. The first thing, he was just out in the crowd before the show, in between bands, signing autographs. Wow. And, uh, and then they went on, and you know, it was with Cliff Burton, and I just sat there. And I didn't go up front because Circle Fit was, it, the headbanging was fucking, it was too crazy up there, like with the stage. And so me and my friend just kind of hung like at the edge of the pit and literally just headbanged the whole time. You know, I remember just being blown away by no remorse. I remember Exodus killing it that night. Like they had the buzz of all buzzes and yeah, they set up in front of everybody. Drums are like literally not even room for the cymbal stands on stage. People in the audience were holding the cymbals up so Dom could hit them. But you know, they played No Love, they played Piranha. Next song, it, it ain't about no goldfish. And it ain't about no tuna fish. And it ain't, it ain't about, about no trout. This song is called Parada. And it was just, it was fucking, I mean, after that, 
so then Raven came on, and Raven was amazing. Raven was actually a really awesome live band, just a killer, killer live band, you know, super exciting, like really energetic. You know, they didn't quite have that aggression and that young sound, you know, it was still kind of like a nod to rock and roll. Yeah. Whereas, whereas Exodus and Metallica were clearly like a nod forward into something that really hadn't ever been done. You know, I ended up, we ended up leaving halfway through because my dad was picking us up and, you know, so we had to go meet my dad and obviously this is before cell phones. So you just had to go and it's okay. It's 1045. We got to go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, I mean, literally the whole way home, Jim, all we talked about was, okay, we have to like, we got to get the band. Like we have to be in a band. We got to do shows. We've got to do something like, you know, that was literally the impetus for us. You know, for me, like you always hear like the older cats talk about seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and, yeah. you know, a million bands started after that. For me, the Kill Em All for One tour at the Keystone Berkeley, that was my Ed Sullivan Beatles. <laughs> Hell yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. Like after that, I was like, this is what I'm going to do. This is all I want to do. You know, like we have to do this, you know, and then you think of, you know, it's funny too, because I think about it like, I mean, you're from Indiana, so obviously you didn't get to go see Metallica. You know, I mean, I guess you could have. They may have toured Indiana. I don't know. But the, fir the first show that I know about being there, and it was slightly before I knew about the band, um, they came through with Armored Saint. I think they were opening for Armored yeah. Saint. Right, and um, yeah, and I have some I have some friends who are a couple years older than me that were at that show. I, I, one, one of those friends who I ended up actually playing in a band with years later, um, he uh, smoked weed with Cliff nice. <laughs> at that show. At the, nice. I believe it was at the Sherwood Theater in Indianapolis, and he has this funny story about him and his buddy smoking out with Cliff, and Cliff dozes off while they're hanging out with him. <laughs> and they're like, they're like, dude, what uh, what should we do? Like, Cliff Burton's asleep. And, uh, you know, and they're super high, and they're teenagers, you know, and they're like, uh, right. let's smell him. So he has this amazing story about leaning over and smelling Cliff Burton. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, he, just, he said he smelled like denim, kind of like denim in a wet basement. Nice. Um, <laughs> and some of those shows were, uh, <clears throat> I, I don't know, the show that you went to, is that one of the ones that's on uh, Cliff Em All? Because I know some of that Kill Em All for One stuff is on there. I think I think the one from The Stone, the next night in San Francisco, is the one that's on there. Okay, yeah, and that's the one yeah. that the uh, the that Anesthesia... The, right on Cliff Mall. Oh, yeah and he did anesthesia that night too yeah my, my first metallica show was uh my, well my first metal show was dio and megadeth actually and it was the tour that was oh uh, badass yeah it was dio megadeth and sabotage and for some reason sabotage didn't play the indianapolis state i still have the megadeth shirt that i bought there and uh and yeah first time seeing metallica was monsters of rock this is what a thrash metal kid i was it was van halen with sammy hagar headlining mm -hmm. the scorpions and Metallica yeah, yeah. and Kingdom I Come. This. Yeah, Metallica was second of five on that bill. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like, you know, if that show were now, I'd be psyched on watching the Scorpions and Van Halen. But at the time, it was all like poser glam stuff. So my buddy and I went we, in both in Metallica shirts, paid whatever the Monsters of Rock ticket price was, stood with our middle fingers flipping off Kingdom Come <laughs> their entire set. You know, everybody called him Kingdom Clone back then. And, yeah, they're uh, like... <laughs> And then yeah, dude. They're like we. They're not, they're like we're not influenced by Led Zeppelin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, and, and yeah, watched Metallica and left, and like we were home. It was still. Daylight. Oh my god, you did the walkout, dude. It was still daylight. You did the, you did the hardcore dude walkout. <laughs> we did the hardcore dude walkout, and we uh, 
Yeah, and I remember uh, they were playing Harvester of Sorrow, like, and Justice for All hadn't come out. And yeah, it's like pre-internet. Metallica's not on the radio, so it was such an amazing thrill to hear a new song that wasn't out yet in the yeah, live definitely. setting, you know. And then I remember there was a picture in the newspaper the next day. Um, so I guess Jason Newstead's family was in Michigan, and his dad had driven down to see Metallica there. And there was this picture of Jason Newstead's dad up front in a Metallica shirt that's like, Metallica bass player Jason Newstead's father in Indianapolis. Oh, like That's awesome. And yeah, and I'm such a fan that's that I, killer. you know, cut that out of the paper and had it on my wall with all my posters and shit, you know, so... Obviously, I wish that I'd gotten to see them sooner. But, you know, it's funny. We're talking about different entry points for bands. Um, the Garage Days EP was like the quote-unquote current Metallica release when I got into them. That had just come out, you know. So it's like, obviously, you know, I'm a massive, massive, massive disciple of Cliff Burton. But, yeah. I mean, you know, Newstead was in the band, what, like 14 years? I mean, he was uh, he was the bass player for my friends and I. Oh, yeah. He was the guy totally. in the band, you know. And he was kind of the thrash dude too, you know. Yeah. Like I think everybody, all the all the true thrashers, kind of I, like when they started going more rock, he was still playing. You know, he'd have he'd wear the thrash shirt or the Slayer shirt or the Violence shirt or anything, and it was like, oh, cool. Yeah, well, even uh, is it Inside Load where he's wearing the Machine Head hoodie? I remember around that era, he was wearing Machine Head and Sepultura stuff. All the yeah, time. he was a dude. He was a big supporter of the band for sure, man. Yeah, always had his ear to the ground, and I remember that that era even. Right when he first joined the band, he would always rep for Sacred Reich and Atrophy and all of those, all the Arizona bands that he came up with. And, and yeah, I mean, he gave a big push for the band. He, uh, you know, we did a mon- we did a Donington Monsters of Rock in '95, right after the first album came out, and it was you know pretty much because of him. I mean, the, all the dudes basically told me, yeah, it was Jason who got you on. Wow! Like wow! Yeah, so you know, that's huge, incredible. huge, uh, you know, champion for the band. So what was your, you know, going from that seminal uh, kill them all for one show and going like, okay, I got to get in a band. Was there a band before uh, you joined forbidden? Well, I guess it would have been forbidden evil back then. Right. Or was that forbidden evil? Yeah, it would have been, well, we were originally called inquisitor, which was named after a Raven Udo Dirk Schneider B side that had come out. Cause my buddy was a, big raven fan and we were loving except so they put out a b-side called inquisitor and we didn't even know what the fucking word meant we're like cool word (laughs) (laughs) yeah it sounds metal (laughs) ourselves that yeah you know there wasn't a whole lot of thought process into it and then there was a metal massacre three that came out and we were like hey we're gonna change our name from inquisitor we're gonna call it something else and there was a metal massacre three that came out and uh there was a band it was i think it was the last song on the record and I can't remember the name of the band. I actually got I got the name from Brian Slagle. You know, let me look it up real quick. I know I, Brian Slagle texted me that the name of the band. Let me see here if I can find it. Brian Slagle. Yeah, here it is. What the fuck was it? Anyway, there was a uh, there was a song on there by this band, and it was called Forbidden Evil. And so I was like, I was like, we should call our band. Forbidden Evil after this song title by this other band on a Metal Massacre 3. And so that's how, basically how Forbidden Evil came to be. And then I left and they changed it to uh, just Forbidden.
Oh man, that is. Uh, and by the way, I'm I'm also trying to find that Metal Massacre three. War Cry. That's it. I just re- I'm just reading through the text. So the band was called War Cry. Amazing. Yeah, and they had a song called Forbidden Evil. So you know, and then you think about the Metal Massacres, and you think about how influential those things were you know like those things probably sold nothing you think about like the influence and the the reach that those things had they had the very first metallica song i mean it was part of the formation of metallica right i mean it's like metallica may not have even happened without hey i've got a spot for you on this comp yeah, and then the next one's got you know the very first Slayer song that anybody's ever going to hear. They've got this War Cry Forbidden Evil song that came out. Like a million other bands talk. Like it's just there was so much that came from that small little thing. And you know here we are in you know fucking Fremont being influenced by it. And so yeah, so then from there, you know I don't know, get back to your question. Like where did we get? Yeah, so that was that. That was the band, and then we just started gigging around. You know, we're playing house parties. We're playing all of our Thrasher friends' backyard parties. And, you know, like, at that time, Fremont was, like, you know, like, we were a bunch of white trash kids. You know, like, it was a lot of, you know, none of us had a lot of money. And so we're just playing in our friends' backyards, and their parents were cool enough to buy some kegs for their crummy 18-year-olds. And <laughs> it was yeah, this yeah. We were playing with punk rock bands and other thrash bands. And, you know, it's funny because half of our half of our set would literally be thrash covers so we played a couple of our original songs and then we would do a lesson in violence by exodus which bonded by blood wasn't even out we were playing the demo version of it the the the, it was the pre-release i don't know if you remember but back in before bonded by blood came out bonded by blood was out and available for six months before the record dropped in the underground scene so we had the it was the official album but it was like the pre-release or whatever it was so here we are six months ahead of the record playing we're playing a lesson in violence we're playing black magic by slayer we're playing whiplash by metallica we're doing and then we're doing our own originals playing backyard parties we started playing church uh like 4f clubs and church halls and stuff like that and we just get a buddy rent him out and you know rent out a hall and in a in a weird way we kind of created this little microcosm of a scene in Fremont. I mean, and that's the same thing that Metallica was doing when you think about it, because their early shows were mostly diamond head songs, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, yeah. budgie and like, you know, and stuff totally. that um, was somewhat contemporaneous with what they were doing, but just unknown, you know? So if you were going to see, Metallica and Anaheim, and they're doing like four Diamond Head songs. They just seem like Metallica songs. Oh, You're yeah. in the I crowd. Think, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no one yeah. would know the difference. Yeah, and so and so then we started getting, and then we got Craig in the band, and Craig was, you know, Craig was the guitar player in Forbidden, and kind of probably the most, you know, well, he was the spoke. He eventually became the spokesperson for the band, and him and I had gotten into metal too, and he was a couple years younger than me, so he was turning me on to even other stuff like Venom and all that stuff, and then he kind of became, you know, he was like he could he had that gift to gab. You know, which I did not have, you know, and I don't know if I have now, but, you know, he definitely had it back then and I definitely did not have it back then. So he started calling up all the thrash clubs, you know, Mabuhay Gardens, where I had seen DRI, Ruthie's Inn, where we we had seen Possessed and Exodus and all these bands. And he's like, we need to get, this is where we need to go. We need to get into the thrash clubs because then we'll become a real band. And, you know, like if we can make it there, then, you know, we can make it anywhere. And so we started get playing those kind of shows, Rock on Broadway, The Stone, the Ruthie's Inn, like the real thrash shows. And we we went over okay. You know, we you know we didn't go over as good as, say, the, the, the main thrash bands, but we didn't get 
killed. <laughs> so <laughs> that was kind of the dividing line. Like there was no in between. Like either you just got, you know, people just, you know, it wasn't even heckling. Like back then people would like fight you off the stage. You know, like dudes just get up and literally like take microphones and push guitar players off the stage, you know, like Toby Rage and all these crazy dudes around the Exodus crew. Like if you weren't heavy enough and if you weren't bringing it, like it was a violent end. They would fight you. They would like beat you. you know, they would try and steal your guitars at the end of the night. You know, like they were it was their dicks. You know, like yeah. it was it was pretty lame. But if you could do, you know, if you could do good, then you know, they'd kind of give you that nod and you'd be welcomed in. And we, you know, they gave us that nod. And I don't know if they accepted us because, you know, we were quite a bit younger. We were a good five years behind that scene. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we were playing our first shows like 86, 87. So, you know, it was, it was well on its way. But, you know, to still to get a nod from them was a big deal and you know gave us this grit and then you know, of course in fremont like our cred just skyrocketed yeah i mean and you yeah. you know you mentioned ruthie's in i've got a, and this is again you know growing up in the midwest and it being like this mythical other place where all this magic is happening but yeah i have this bootleg of uh the second megadeth show that was at ruthie's in with with carrie king on guitar and nice. um, i think exodus nice. and legacy were supporting right. um that might as well have been Camelot or something to oh, me, God, like thinking God, about God. this club out there, you know? Yeah. Um, and to hear like, to hear that the dude from Slayer was in Megadeth. Like, <laughs> exactly. Was huge, you know, exactly. it was like, Oh my God, like this is going to be the best band ever. Yeah. You know? And then the beef happened, you know, and then the beef with Metallica happened. And then, you know, Meth Mustaine and Kirk Hammett and, you know, Metallica guys versus Slayer. And like, you know, like I, I think that it's often, and I talk about this a lot, but I think that, you know, the one thing that often gets, you know, with time, and of course, it's been 30 years, so, you know, people kind of forget. But, dude, the rivalry between those bands was vicious. It was it was so brutal. Like, if you like Slayer and you lived in the Bay Area, it was like, you're a poser. Like, they wear eyeliner. You know, like, yeah, it was like yeah. beef. And then Mustaine would come up to the Bay Area all the time. And literally, dude, I'd go see Megadeth. He'd, take, he'd dedicate a good 10 minutes to talking shit about Kirk Hammett, <laughs> talking shit about, fuck those guys, they stole all my wrists, Kirk Hammett's playing all my leads note for note, he's a wannabe, I mean, just, I mean, it was merciless, dude, like, yeah. and so there was that, there was that beef, and you know, people often forget, you know, like the beef between Slayer, I mean, I remember, I don't, I don't have, my buddy has a recording of it, I don't have a recording of it, but Lars and James went on KUSF, and they did a phony interview where Lars was a journalist, and James pretended to be Carrie King, and they were wow. interviewing Slayer, and <laughs> dude, it was the funniest fucking thing, it was ruthless, dude, like, it this was just totally like, unknown like, to me, I've never heard of that. Like, he's like, yeah. he's like, oh, I like, I like all these upside down crosses, Have he's like, oh yeah, I like to hang upside down too, and you know, just <laughs> super funny, and just ripping them dude and so that there you know there was a pretty serious beef between them and if you think about it you know now it looks all great because oh it's the big four and whatever dude yeah. slayer did slayer didn't play with metallica any of those dates they hated each other's guts dude for decades they yeah. refused to get them on a bill you know and then around the time that we were doing the death magnetic dates i started like planting the seeds like as lars like hey man like how come you guys never tour with Slayer? Is it because of the fucking beef? Like, get over that shit. You guys should tour. And so after the forum show, funny you should bring up that forum show, I, you know, Kerry came down, he was talking, we were hanging, and I'm hanging with him at the bar, and Lars walks up, and I was like, I gotta do it. 
like, I got to do this. And I was like, how come you motherfuckers have never toured with each other? <laughs> like, nice. I just, I just yeah. Threw it, out, threw it out there. They're like, oh, and I was like, you guys need to tour. I was like, that shit would be amazing. It would be awesome. And, but, you know, conversation goes on. They talk. They're like, yeah, you know, maybe we should. You know, the next night, Lars played a little Rain and Blood. And, uh, you know, so then it ends away. And, like, Lars walks away and Carrie looked at me and he's like, I owe you for that one. That's <laughs> <laughs> so fucking killer. And then, you know, a couple, it took a couple of years, but yeah, well, happened. I mean, that was a lot of moving parts to put in place. How, how, you know, how amazing that it got to happen. You know, I'm not going to sit here and say yeah. it was obvious. No, no, no. But it, it's a convergent, so convergence of a, events. You know, from yeah. a business standpoint, it was a genius move on Metallica's part. But, you know, this little seed that I planted along the way in my in my fandom being part, you know, being yeah. just part of the, you know, part of the mix. Like, hey, you know. And I believe, and dude, and I believe it was kind of fated to happen right exactly when it did too, because if you if you look at that specific moment in time, you had uh, Slayer original lineup. You know, Jeff was was still around, and Labardo was still in the band, and you had Ellison had just come back into Megadeth, and I think you know, I, I and he's a, a buddy of mine, so I'm I'm a little biased, but I think Rob Casciano is the best lead guitar player Anthrax has had. And, you know, Joey just come in the band, which made a lot of fans happy. It was just kind of like a perfect moment for that to happen, where any kind of moment just before or even since, it wouldn't have been the same show or as cool of a show as as the big four was when yeah, it right. finally happened you know yeah i mean and thank you as a fan <laughs> playing a role in uh you're welcome. You're welcome. bringing that together um so were you did you have a sense you know when it was and obviously then moving on into violence you know death angel obviously legacy and becoming testament and all of that um defiance some of those bands that were around in that bay area did, did it did you have a sense that it was a scene and it was kind of, you know, whether it was the second wave or whatever you, you want to call it, like a couple of years later that it was? I, can, I, can, I, can, I always considered us third wave. So to mm-hmm. me, it was like Metallica, Exodus, Slayer, Megadeth. And then it was like Testament, Death Angel. And then it was Forbidden Violence. But did you, did you feel like it was a, a movement? Like, were you aware that you were kind of part of something that was happening? You know, because I'm always curious about that with various scenes in general, you know, like that, with, that fans kind of, we create these these uh movements after the fact right did yeah i don't feel like you know like it's so funny because if i when i look back at that time i didn't realize that i was a part of this special scene you know this was just you know like i said i'm getting dropped off by my dad i'm 17 years old like i'm going to a show and then you know we got into ruthie's and we started playing and then now i'm hanging out at ruthie's and like in walks James Hetfield and in yeah. walks Chris Burton and in walks Paul Bailoff and Gary Holt and Granite, you know, like I said, I was still kind of, you know, I don't want to say shy, but I was shy. Like, and I was five years younger than all those guys. So it's not like I was like, so, uh, like Craig could have walked up to all those guys and just started yapping. I couldn't have done that, you know? And I didn't, you know, I didn't, I was, you know, like, I remember like we bought a we bought a joint off of James Hetfield one time. <laughs> <laughs> And it was like the biggest thrill for me. I was like, oh my God, we just, you know, like, and it was, you know, I doubt that he would uh, tell that story these days, but it was definitely, <laughs> yeah. definitely happened. And it was bad. It was so bad, too. It was like <laughs> the dirt, dirtest dirt weed. Of course. But, uh, you know, like, and just to be able to see this, like, and then to watch it rise. You know, to watch them go from, oh, now I'm seeing them play two nights at the Kabuki with Armored Saint opening. Oh, wow. Now I'm watching them headline at the San Francisco Civic on New Year's. And they just played two songs off of Master of Puppets. And 
I don't even really like these songs, you know, like it, it was funny because like, you know, then I started getting into heavier stuff and then like rain and blood yeah. comes out. SOD came out and it was like, ah, Metallica, but, uh, you know, and then fade to black and it was like, Hmm, what's going on? But then you just watch this meteoric rise happening with this band that is kind of doing it their own way. And it's not pandering to radio and it's not part of this super poppy glam stuff that's going on. And it's like, wow, maybe there is a different way that this can be done. And, you know, granted, I probably never even would talk to these guys. Like, I still just couldn't go up and talk to them. And, and But, you know, it was inspiring to me. And then our band started doing well. And we would, you know, I don't want to say follow, but yeah, we would follow. I mean, it was a huge inspiration to go, wow, look at Metallica just did what? They just did the Bill Graham Civic. Holy shit. They just did the Oakland Arena opening the day on the green. You know, like I'm seeing all these things and, you know, I'm watching all of these things. And it's like, we can do this, man. Like we can do this. Like we can do a band and play this crazy heavy music and it's going to react. And, you know, it might've only been, Five years, really. When it, if you if you really look at like the thrash scene in the Bay Area, like eighty three to eighty eight is really like when it was probably the you know because after that you know like after eighty and you got to remember like eighty eight like Metallica's dropping a Justice for All, Cliff passed away, you know Testament started moving towards you know practice what you preach and getting more commercial, so you know it really started ending around eighty and then grunge stuff started coming up, Soundgarden, mm. you know this kind of new stuff funk primus you know chili peppers so that five year period where bay area had just suffered a really brutal economic recession you know so there's like i mean it's really really run down you know bay area you know it wasn't until like 90s late 90s that that huge silicon valley boom happened yeah they just kind of you know rebuilt itself but back in the 80s it was you know it was desolate you know you went into any major inner cities and it was just abandoned homes and you know like all that that kind of poorness that the cities all of the cities were going through you know, people, what do they want to do? They want to go to shows. They want to go drink their sorrows away. So all these music venues were available for people to go do that. And, you know, there was no security. There was no barricades. There was no insurance. Insurance. Like, you know, I remember <laughs> like, what, what's that? You know, security was the old guy. I remember the security guy at the at Ruthie's was the old black dude with a gun. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it wasn't like, oh, no, I've got security guards and, you know, some security force. Like, if you broke your, you know, I remember breaking my ribs, you know, broken, breaking my nose. You get in a fight at a show. It was a badge of honor. You wouldn't even think about suing somebody that would like you'd be a poser. You know what I mean? Like that was a that was a badge of honor to get injured in the Exodus pit or whatever. Yeah. And so, you know, it was a totally different mindset and that mindset obviously, you know, forever changed my the way that I looked at the world and created music and inspired what we do. And you know, I mean, not to just dwell on that too because then rap came along in 84 also and rap was massive in our world. It was like, you know, so we had punk rock rap and metal and to us there was really no difference it was all oh yes yeah. there's such bombastic. connective tissue between all of it yeah and it and it, it, it was all storytelling and vibe and energy from a certain point of view that you know those of us who had the right chemical combination of of family life and economic class and all that so you put all those ingredients together and 
Yeah, I mean, because I say, you know, I like you said, those guys are about five years ahead of you. You're about five or six years ahead of me. And I, I had that exact same experience. I mean, the, those formative years of Metallica, Megadeth, Slayer, all the Testament, all those bands being important to me. At the same time, it was also Boogie Down Productions, uh, Public Enemy, yeah. NWA, obviously, the you know, super pissed off, like super angry. You know, yeah, like, I mean, like, dude, oh. listen, listening to X Clan and being scared. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> totally. I saw X Clan live too. No way. Yeah, with Cypress Hill and uh, B Money from uh, Digital Underground. It wow. was Cypress Hill headlining with X Clan supporting. They were terrible. They were fucking stupid. I was like, <laughs> it seemed scary on record, but like live, I was like, this shit's just corny. Yeah, <laughs> like on oh, the African the African garb, and I was like, I can't, I can't. <laughs> Call, yeah, and they they couldn't get away with calling people sissies. Now that would be triggering everyone. Right. Remember that was the thing, you sissies. <laughs> um, <laughs> man, it's uh, and yeah, and kind of bringing us full circle with some of this tape trading and and getting into things and sort of that network that went from you know people writing letters back and forth to fanzines to then getting into some magazines that were nationally distributed. The first time the first time I heard of violence was that uh, Mechanic Records ad that was in magazines that was like, oh right, right, you could, right totally. you could mail in and get the demo. And yeah, I mean it was like that's what I mean. Like uh, the violence demo then to me wasn't any. I didn't distinguish that from like a commercially released like major label album. You know, it was all the same to me. Like it was all just as vital and important and and cool so yeah well dude i gotta have you on for a part two because <laughs> there's still so much more Metallica to talk. <laughs> I know, I know. We, got, we got up to about 88. We got from 88 <laughs> till now. Exactly. Yeah, and I, and I will say on that tip, you know, I love hearing you talk about even the change in songs between No Life to Leather to Kill Them All and then, you know, hearing Faith of Black, because I always find myself in these conversations with people who are younger than me. Uh, you know, it, it's all time, place, and circumstance. Like, it, it depends on when and where they discovered the band. And you know, where their point of discovering things that were more extreme or whatever came in. Because you'll hear people say, you know, the Black Album was a turning point for them, or of course, you know, Load and Reload and whatever. And I always say, like, dude, there were fans back in the day that were pissed off about Fade to Black. Like, they've been turning these corners and going forward, whether the fans liked it or not, and doing what made sense to them and, and, and being true to themselves uh from the beginning you know it was always yeah. there were always those moments and I, I remember um going to the record store you know and like i wasn't old enough to drive yet but in 88 when Justice for all came out like going down there on street date and riding in the back of some dude's pickup truck who was like a total asshole who drove my friend and i down there and was like you know taking every crazy turn like trying to basically throw us out of his truck oh my god they were like literally like risking our lives to get to the record store to get and justice for all and then sitting with the five or six metalheads in my high school in our little tiny section of the cafeteria and everyone being bummed out because the record was slow like everyone's like oh dire's yeah. game is the only good song you know and and now it's like yeah that's a that was classic totally. album, i remember listening know? to it being like what is with this the sound on this record like you know i remember that's that 
even now, like I'm, I'm not a big fan of the song of justice for all. It's so freaking long. You know, I'm just like, <laughs> you know, but I remember listening to it back then and being like, what is the deal? You know, in like yeah. 88, like everything was starting to change, you yeah. know, like, and it was like, everything was starting to change. You know, like there was these new things coming, they were going in a different direction and, you know, you kind of lose your, your footing as a fan and you're like, I don't like what is going on with everybody. And, you know, of course, yeah. Like now, like think about it without the song one, I can't remember anything Can't tell if this is true or dream Deep down inside I feel the scream This terrible silence stops in there I mean, think about that one song. If they wouldn't have had that one song, there never would have been the video. There right. never would have been that that huge step that they made. You know, that... You know, and there's some great songs on that record. Blackened is amazing. You know, Dyer's Eve is amazing. Shortest Straw is amazing. Harvester of Sorrow is amazing. But one, you know, and then they had to make the controversial. Remember, they were like, we'll never make we'll a video. We'll never make a video. We'll <laughs> never <laughs> make a video. A video. Yeah. And, and then, and, and then like, even that, and even that, I remember, and I remember Lars even had the excuse then where it's like, well, but it's not like a traditional music video because it has these <laughs> film clips in it and there's dialogue and you know, and MTV's upset about it. They don't like, we didn't make it for them. And then I remember around the Black Album when they would just put out straight up performance videos and it's like, well, that went out the window, <laughs> you know, like, or but even, that, or even when the, the jamming version, remember the jamming version? Song, yeah. Yeah. But that, cha- that one song changed the course of the band. Yeah. You know, like it literally took them from, okay, here's some hard rock, you know, here's some underground metal stuff that's doing good to like, whoa, this could really be a massive thing, you know, and I remember listening to it and I remember watching that video and, you know, I get, you know, I don't know if I was caught up in it, like as much as everybody else was, I didn't really care because I was more interested in seeing what this unique video was going to be about. And when I saw it, I was like, wow, cool video. (laughs) Yeah. I thought it it was was cool. Yeah. Yeah, So, and I I also had that attitude where, you know, it's like you want, you want these bands to stay yours and these scenes and these movements to stay yours. But I also, you know, I was different from, I think some other fans where I also championed the successes. Like I, I felt some validation when some things that I liked, whether it's movies, comic books, whatever kind of broke through. Cause it was kind of like, yeah, I wasn't a fucking bizarre loser weirdo for liking that shit. That shit's actually fucking badass. And now everyone likes it. Fuck you. Uh, you know, I always had a little bit of that, that other chip on my shoulder to balance out the chip. That's mad that people are getting into the stuff you like. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I was, I mean, I, I had the distinction of being in high school. I was a senior in high school when the Black Album came out. And it was right towards the end of my high school experience. When, Everybody got into the Black Album. Yeah, it smells like teen spirit. Your whole school got into the Black Album. Seriously, like all of a sudden jocks and football players were wearing Metallica shirts. And it definitely had. And, and that, of course, is when me and all my friends are then like, well, we like Morbid Angel. Yeah, right. <laughs> you so. know, it's like, <laughs> we don't listen to that poser watered down stuff we're into the, like we listen to death we listen to you know and there's yeah. always going to be that but i, I love the black i loved it back I then love it. I, Dude, I love it i love i loved it then and honestly and i you know and you and i may diverge here but i i'm a long time defender of the load reload era there's a couple there's a couple of good songs you yeah. know like i i don't hate it you know like i love the song devil dance i love the song i love fuel i think fuel is amazing i love memory remains like, I think that song's awesome. And, and you know what's great about those two songs in particular is now that they have such a catalog, when they're, you know, I just saw them at the Rose Bowl, uh, it gives them dynamics in their set. You totally. know, and you can throw fuel in right after um, 
you know, blackened or something. And it's like, it really kind of breaks it up without having to be a ballad, you know, but dude, I would, I would put the outlaw torn and bleeding me. Yeah. Those are great songs too. Yeah, Those are like in my top Metallica songs, period. You know, and I, I, with St. Anger, it's like, I understand why it had to happen. Um, Frantic's killer, St. Anger's killer, rest of it's horrible. I, I, I think uh, Frantic with some editing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but yeah. The, I hook, mean, it's, the hook is good. Yeah, and, 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 and this is this is where my super fanboy comes out because I'll dig this deep, but there's an acoustic version of All Within My Hands that they did at one of the Bridge School benefits that redeems that song where it's like, oh, well, this is cool in this arrangement. And here's my stance on Lulu. I've said this before. I've said this on this podcast before. Lulu would be fine if it were something that, you know, they got the opportunity to do it. Don't fault them for trying. Put it in the vault. And then someday when, like, you've retired or you've, you can't physically play anymore, like, when, it, when it's become a legacy act that's like a Tupac or an Elvis where there's all this, like, random shit coming out, that's when you go, hey, this is crazy. But one time Metallica made an album with Lou Reed. And then they shelved it. And, and yeah. And like it and, came out 30 years after everybody died. Yeah. Now it's, now it's a curiosity of like, Oh, what a weird random thing. I, that is the context in which. But either way, what, okay. That's, that's your context. <laughs> but what do you think of Lulu? Yeah, I mean, it would still be terrible, but it would it's be... It's horrible. But it would be, like, like interesting. Hor- <laughs> like, there's no... There is nothing. It is horrible. Like, I, 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 like, we actually have a game in Machine Head. It's the Lulu Endurance Test, where, like, if you drive to Los Angeles, <laughs> try and listen to Lulu twice and see if you can survive. Like, it's mind-bogglingly bad, you know? Like, And I hate... You know what? And I hate Lou Reed. Like, I've never liked Lou Reed. I never even got the whole, like, why is, like, this is, why is this even happening? You know, like, Lou Reed had the, you know, do, 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 the one good song. Like, everybody thinks he's cool. I don't, I never thought he was cool. Like, I never got and, it. And I mean, that, and that song in my mind, it was just all- seemed like, it seemed like some, dickhead at Rolling Stone was like, hey, why don't you guys jam with Lou Reed? And somebody went, yeah, cool idea. Like, you know, like it just was such a random pairing of people, you know, like, I don't know. You can feel the effort on both sides in trying to make something work that shouldn't have and, and ultimately didn't, you know. But yeah, and even even that even that do to do song it was only cool when Tribe Called Quest sampled it and made it cool. 
Yeah. I mean, I just, <laughs> That's the only reason I even mind. like that song. I love that they can joke about it now, though. Like, I think that they, you know, even if they will defend it, you know, because they're going to defend it. And you know, I even got it. Yeah. Stefan Shirazi is the guy who writes for the fan sure. club. Yeah, of course. Awesome, dude. I love Stefan Shirazi. I've been a, been a friend of mine forever. And we, even him and I got into it the other, you know, this is like a year ago at uh, my manager's wedding. <laughs> like he, they were both drunk. We're sitting at the bar. And he's like, Lulu is fun. I'm like, shut the fuck up, dude. I was like, that record, I was like, I like, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not even going to hear this. Like, I'm not going to hear you. Like, But yeah, if it, uh, if it was a curious thing that we could discuss somewhere after the fact, but to be kind of passed off as an official release and that they played shows around it. And, you know, they even did on the, those 30th anniversary shows, they even did some busted out some Lulu and yeah. busted out some Bob rock on bass. <laughs> Yeah, you know what? And you know what? Good for that. Those anniversary shows were amazing. Amazing. They were. Yeah. I mean, like, just for so much just pure history and, you know, the little museum area where you could walk around and, you know, cliff spaces and, of you know, course. just even that stuff, you know, like Bob Rock on bass. Like, that was. Yeah, that was cool. That's where it that should was, happen. It's like, you know, <laughs> I, I, I have to say, like, but through it all, I have to say they are. You know, if there was anything that I admire about them, and yes, of course, James Hetfield right hand has been, you know, one of you know the guiding lights of my, <laughs> of my light. You know what I mean? Like yeah. his right hand is still, you know, him and Kerry King are, you know, the ones to beat. Unstoppable. But, uh, yeah, unstoppable. But, you know, and musically, of course, you know, it's been massive. But the one thing I will say about them and the way that they conduct their stuff and you know there is there is definitely some myth making that goes on in the metallica camp but for all of the myth making that that band has and our geniuses at the freaking geniuses at it they are so brutally brutally honest and put out so much of their victories and their flaws and their mistakes and you know they own up to it they never you know back away from it you know i mean i i talked you know i've talked with the slayer guys about this before like some kind of monster like they're you know some of those guys in that camp are like i would never do that as long as i lived and i sit there and look at it and go i'm so glad they did that because it i mean you know it shows people at their most fragile at their most vulnerable at their weakest you know like our our hero james hetfield you know like in this the depths of this like reconstruction of his whole identity and to put it out there you know to show the fighting to show that i don't even know who you are anymore you know like lars yelling in james hetfield's face like dude like yeah. that took ball i don't think no one can understand the balls that it took, especially because they're so big to put all of that out there. You know, yeah. like I walked, some people walked away from that. Like, Oh my God, I hate Metallica. They went, I walked away from it going, I love Metallica probably more than I ever have. 
because 100%, it's dude. so scary, so scary and so fearless to be just go, all right, let's put it out. Here's me acting like a complete baby, <laughs> you know, <laughs> who does that? You know, and especially now think about society now. Society now would never like everybody's life is about putting the best selfie up and the best picture of them and the best thing like that whole idea of putting yourself looking like crap is so foreign to most people, you know, now because all we ever want to do is talk about the good things going in our life and the good things happen to us. We rarely ever let out our flaws. And for to watch a band of that magnitude, you know, literally the biggest band in metal and possibly even rock music at that point to bear, put it all out there, dude, you know, respect. I, I couldn't agree more. And I was a reporter uh, for MTV at the time. And they had sent me to the Sundance film festival to interview Hillary Duff's sister, who was in a movie called Napoleon Dynamite that, you know, was at Sundance and no one had ever heard of. And it was literally, it was literally like I interviewed her for a piece that went on TRL, but I knew the Metallica movie was there <laughs> and got into his, got into a screening. And, nice. um, dude, I mean, I, you know, I felt Newstead's anger. I felt, uh, you know, I'm like the only dude clapping when, uh, when Kirk says, yeah, but if we, if we do a record without guitar solos because no one has guitar solos right now, it's going to make it sound dated to right now. And I'm like, yeah, you know, just the little, yeah. the little tidbits. And then obviously the big emotional beats. And uh, I mean, I literally, you know, I don't cry at movies and I, I, I got teary sitting through that and, and you kind of start relating it to your own life and totally. you feel like you're growing up with these people. And yeah, I, I mean, you, you put it, I couldn't put it any better than you just did. It was, I mean, just beautiful. Um, and I, and I feel the same way. I'm I'm so glad they did that. And they actually at Sundance did a press conference. It's it's in the DVD bonus features. This is my only Metallica claim to fame. Where the band was in Hawaii while we're all freezing our asses off at Sundance. And they did a they did, <laughs> they did, a, they, a, they did a, a video a, Yeah, they did a satellite press conference where there was a big screen with them on it. And yeah, Hawaii. A microphone. Yeah, and I and, and and I got up and you got one question. I got up and I'm like, hey, I'm Ryan Downey from MTV News and. Just want to say, uh, you know, how much I love the film and this and that. And, I, and, and I was the dude, the thrash kid that asked the Dave Mustaine question. I'm like, I want to talk about that scene with Dave Mustaine, which I mean, no, I, we'd all just seen it for the first time that morning, you know? And I'm like, you know, James, you, you didn't have an opportunity to be there. Like, what would you have said if you were there? And, um, yeah, so that's, that's in the, you know, if anyone listening to this wants to dig out there, some kind of monster DVD and watch the bonus features, I'm in there for two that's seconds. Awesome. That's um, killer. Well, Rob, dude, thank you so much for making the time to do this. When I had the idea to do this podcast, um, my list of people that um, I really wanted to have on here, you were right up there in that top five. I'm really glad you were able to take the time to do it. I definitely want to have you on again because there's always so much Metallica to talk about. And we'll just uh, remind people that you're Rob Flynn, the general from Machine Head, and they can find you in all sorts of places. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. This was awesome, dude. This was really fun and um, you know, like again, like I was saying, like a great conversation, like makes my blood pump. This was rad. One hundred percent. That's the whole. Thanks that's for having the whole me. Reason. I'll talk to you soon. That was fucking killer. He's great. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I loved participating in it. Check out all of our previous episodes if you haven't yet. 
including our kickoff flagship episode with M Shadows of Avenged Sevenfold, which was also equally no less killer than this episode. I want to remind you that thanks to my friends at Warner Music, I am giving away a deluxe collector's edition of the Kill 'Em All box set. Yes, that is the box set that comes with a big, huge book and a whole bunch of other stuff to a random person who leaves a review in the iTunes store for Speak and Destroy. As soon as we get up to 100 reviews, we're going to pick someone from that group of wonderful people who've taken the time to write a little review on the iTunes store because those reviews matter. They help people discover this podcast. You can find me at Ryan Downey on Twitter, at SuperheroHQ on Instagram. You can find Speak and Destroy on Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter as well. Speak and Destroy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. To paraphrase the great Dave Mustaine, as I try to do in everything that I host, you guys have been great, and I've been Ryan J. Downey.